0: We are now ready to begin Father Jenkins' talk, which I'm sure many of us have anticipated and has tremendous significance, John Paul II and the New World Order. Father Jenkins. Thank you. It's always difficult to be anticipated, as Jesus says, because uh, it's hard to live up to people's expectations, but. And I do have a plane to catch at 3 o'clock this afternoon, so I'm going to have to uh, move very quickly, and I hope you'll be able to follow me. Now that celebrations of victory in the war against Iraq are finished, and the American soldiers are returning to their homes, it is clear to many people that America was fighting against a ruthless and bloody tyrant Media reports and photos of the mutilated corpses in the impromptu morgue in Kuwait City revealed the brutality of the Iraqi soldiers who invaded Kuwait City. No less do the pathetic stories of the men who were supposed to fight for Hussein until their last drop of blood reveal a people terrorized into a kind of suicide mission. Our military service personnel deserve high praise for their courage and discipline and even their compassion for the enemy. Yet it is easy to see what America was fighting for, fighting against in all this. Unfortunately, it has not been nearly so easy to discern what America was fighting for. The plight of the Kurdish refugees in northern Iraq and the executions of so-called collaborators in liberated Kuwait do raise the question of what lasting good we accomplished in the Gulf War. But the purpose of the conflict was never really well defined. At various times and by various sources the people of America were informed they were fighting for the stability and accessibility of oil, the liberation of the victim Kuwait after the invasion by an unjust aggressor, the defense of Israel threatened by the bellicose dictator of Iraq, the enforcement of the United Nations resolutions against Iraq, and finally we were told we were fighting for freedom and democracy. But looming over all of these explanations of the rationale behind the Gulf War was the reason given by President Bush in his address to the joint session of Congress on September 11th, 1990. It was there that President Bush told the United States of America that we were fighting for the new world order. In his address to the Joint Session of Congress last September, the President said this, A new partnership of nations has begun. We stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move toward a historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order, can emerge. A new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace an era in which the nations of the world, east and west, north and south, can prosper and live in peace. A hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace, while a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor. Today, that new world is struggling to be born, a world quite different from the one we've known. The president concluded his address with stirring words, many would say ominous words. We are now in sight of a United Nations that performs as envisioned by its founders. Once again, Americans have stepped forward to share a tearful goodbye with their families before leaving for a strange and distant shore. At this very moment, they serve together with Arabs, Europeans, Asians, and Africans in defense of principle and the dream of a new world order. That is why they sweat and toil in the sand and the heat and the sun. The president concluded, thank you, good night, and God bless America. Now this announcement by the United States president of a new world order was not the first such call by a world leader. He was really echoing the words of another president, Mikhail Gorbachev, The president of the Soviet Union, who declared one year ago last June to the students at our own Stanford University in California that old enemies must now work together to build a new world order. The Inquirer News Service quoted Mikhail Gorbachev as saying to the students of Stanford, In our cooperation to build a better future, I would take as the point of departure the fact that the Cold War is now behind us. And let us not wrangle over who won it, who won the Cold War. Gorbachev said it was time for dissolving the Cold War alliances of nations, the Warsaw Pact and NATO, and that the nations of the earth should begin working together for the whole of civilization. We must all change, he declared, calling for a new world order of patience and tolerance. The enthusiastic audience interrupted the Soviet president's speech several times with applause and gave him a standing ovation at its conclusion. Now, just last month, almost a year to the day that Gorbachev spoke these words to the students at Stanford, the president of another nation addressed the same students and called for the construction of a new world order. The President of South Korea, Ro Tae-woo, told the students at Stanford on June 29th that Korea and the United States will combine efforts toward establishing a new world order. The promise of a new world order is really nothing new. As President Bush pointed out, 100 generations have come and gone, all yearning for the coming of this new world order, which he says is now being born. The phrase appears in Latin on the reverse side of the great seal of the United States, which, by the way, was rejected as part of the original seal because of its shady Masonic overtones, according to Spencer in his fascinating book, The Cult of the All-Seeing Eye. but what is the meaning of this new world order what is this going to be it appears in the talk of presidents bush and Garbashov. where did this phrase come from and what does it signify as i mentioned the phrase is on the reverse side of the Great Seal of the United States in Latin, Novus Ordo secularum, which means the new order of the ages. It has to do with a complete overturning of the system of things that now govern the world. Not only the system, but the very ideas, the very ideologies, the and most importantly of all, the very faith that people have. It sounds very much like the Novus Ordo Mise. It's surprising to hear that Paul VI introduced a new order of Mass. The use of the word order was a very strange choice, because ordinarily the Church would employ a word like a new rite of Mass, or a new ceremony perhaps, but a new order. A new order of implies a complete undoing of the past and the creation of something entirely new. Well, that is what the phrase the new world order means. The creation of a new world. Not only in its structures, but in its very ideas. President Bush as a student at Yale University, was a member of a secret society called the Skull and Bone Society. The involvement of President Bush in secret societies has even drawn some international attention. A German monthly called Saca Informationen of June 1991 says of the United States president, with the words, God bless the combat forces of the coalition, God bless the United States of America. Bush began the Gulf War on January 16, 1991. Which God did Bush mean? The magazine 30 Days also posed this question in its February edition on page 13. And its answer is as follows. On the occasion of his inaugural oath as president on January 20th, 1989, <coughs> Bush placed his hand upon a Bible. By the way, it was the most venerable Freemasonic Bible in the world, which usually is kept in the Livingston Museum of the Lodge of St. John in New York. George Bush is a Freemason and can be proud of it, tersely declared Giuliano Giuliano di Berardo. Grand Master of the Italian Lodge of the Grand Orient. Of equal concern is President Bush's long history with the Council on Foreign Relations. An interesting booklet by P.B. Courtney, entitled Not in Our National Interest, was published last year by the Independent American out of Littleton, Colorado, and it maintains that the Gulf War was, as the title suggests, not in the United States' national interest. The author cites the September 6th syndicated column of John McManus, publisher of the New American magazine. She quotes him as saying, internationalists and their world government promoting cronies aren't even trying to hide their glee about one significant aspect of the Middle East crisis. They are delighted with the huge jump in importance given to the United Nations. The author indicates that the Council on Foreign Relations has a great deal to do with setting the stage for the New World Order, and she charges George Bush with long-standing membership in the Council on Foreign Relations. George Bush joined the Council on Foreign Relations in 1971, and at the time of his resignation in 1979 to run for president. Was serving a 1978 79 term as member of the board of directors of that organization. And Courtney quotes from study number seven published by the CFR on November 25th, 1959, calling for efforts to, and this is a quote, build a new international order which must be responsive to world aspirations for peace and for social. economic change and international order, including states labeling themselves as socialist. In fact, the entire Allied military operation against Iraq was officially a United States undertaking, I beg your pardon, was officially a United Nations undertaking, and the United States was simply the principal instrument in carrying out a UN mandate But according to some sources, the conflict in the Mideast was prescribed over a decade ago by the powerful CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, in its publication, Foreign Affairs, which allegedly called for the finding of a pretext for the establishment of a permanent United States military presence in the Middle East. In describing his new world order the president talked about the central role to be played by the United Nations and how in establishing this new world order we would need a United Nations which functioned according to its principles what is new here in the call for the new world order is that the program is already in place and this principal instrument of world government stands ready to be employed now this idea of a united nations which would function as it was intended at its creation is an idea that has been We might say evolving for a long long time. The idea was central to the plans of Freemasonry in this United States for decades, even centuries. I'm going to turn now to a book by Father Cahill. It's a name that's very familiar to many of you, Father Cahill was a Jesuit, an Irish Jesuit, who during the first half of this century wrote many enlightening works about the establishment of Christian society and exposing the machinations of the Masons against Christian society. The book I'm going to turn to is his work called Freemasonry and the Anti-Christian Movement. The reason why I turn to this book is because he sheds a little bit of light on the the thought of international Freemasonry in the direction of creating a world government and through this world government bringing about a new world order. Father Cahill quotes a certain amount from a book called La Dictature de la franc maconnerie sur la France by A. G. Michel, published in Paris in 1924. And this book relates some of the decrees and statements issuing from Masonic conventions of that day in France. For example, he gives a series of quotes here, on Masonic activity, quoting from Masonic sources. The Congress of Geneva in 1902, the Masonic conference, said that Freemasonry ought to be felt everywhere, but nowhere definitely revealed. We ought to be most zealous to make our ideas permeate the masses of the people. We rejoice in the fact that they are germinating and bearing fruit. This is from the Convention of the Grand Orient in 1922. Sporting clubs, boy scout companies, convivial organizations, choral societies, all the types of association that attract youth. These are a fruitful soil in which to exercise masonic propaganda with the greatest profit. This was from the Convention of the Grand Orient from the following year, 1923. Perhaps the statement that concerns us the most here is that it was issued by the de la Grande Lodge de France in 1923. And this is what it said. An admirable aspiration towards an ideal of altruism and pacifism is carrying the brethren of most of our lodges to set up their hopes in the complete and absolute realization of that organism for the liberation of modern society, the League of Nations. And from the Convention of the Grand Orient again in 1923, it is a part of the duty of universal Freemasonry to give its whole support to the League of Nations so that the latter should no longer need to be subject to the interested influences of governments. Now, as you remember, the League of Nations was the forerunner of the United Nations. The Masonic International Congress in 1917 made statements about the establishment of a league of all nations which would be charged with the government of the world reports about this international congress of masonry appeared in the Corriere della Sera of Italy a special con- representatives of the Masonic Conference, including members from Masonry, from all of the Allied powers, met in Paris in January 14th and 15th, 1917. The objectives of the Congress, which was later on that year to meet, were declared to be the following. To prepare the way for the United States of Europe, this should sound very familiar today because all of this is now coming to realization, to prepare the way for the United States of Europe to set up a supranational authority whose purpose will be to settle the disputes between nations. Freemasonry will be the agent of propaganda in favor of this conception of universal peace and happiness which is the League of Nations. That the meeting of Masonry on June 28th, held under the pres- presidency of General Pénier, the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of France, the constitutions of the future League of Nations were voted upon. They were almost identical with those that were afterwards adopted at the Treaty of Versailles, establishing the League of Nations. Two months later, the Grand Orient of France issued the following declaration. The General Assembly of the Grand Orient of France invites its members to a vigorous and incessant campaign in favor of general disarmament and the setting up of an international tribunal with the necessary sanctions for the maintenance of peace in the world. Another extract from the Roman daily La Tribuna of November 14, 1929, talks about profane organizations, what are known in Masonry as profane organizations. These are not actual Masonic associations, but they are associations that can be trusted to do to follow the Masonic lead. So if there is propaganda that appears in a Masonic publication, these others will pick it up and amplify it. These profane associations, which are at least as numerous as the professedly Masonic lodges, serve Masonry as residence boards for the diffusion of its ideas and principles. As the central Masonic organs give the note, all these associations join in the chorus and follow the lead in perfect harmony. Now, one of these profane organizations is called the Pan-Europeische Union the Pan-European Union. And this is what uh, Father Cahill has to say about this Pan-European Union organization. A step towards the World Republic, he says. In 1925, the Grand Lodge of Vienna sent a manifesto to masonry throughout the world, seeking advice as how best to aid this organization, the moving spirit of which is a famous mason by the name of Kondelhove Kallerga. The Rotary Club of Vienna also supports it as much as can be expected from the fact that many Viennese Rotarians are leading members of the Masonic Lodge. What is interesting about this profane organization tenuously associated with Masonry is that in the 1920s its purpose was to work for a United Europe and a World Federation. And finally Still from Father Cahill's work, They turn to the transactions of the Congress of the French Grand Lodge of Masonry in 1922. After passing resolutions in favor of enlarging the powers of the League of Nations so as to make it into a supranational government with an international bank and an international currency, these transactions of the French Grand Lodge go on to say, the principal tasks before the League of Nations consist in the organization of peace, the creation of a European spirit and of a patriotism of the League of Nations, in a word, the formation of the United States of Europe, or rather, the federation of the world. This federation of the nations implies the institution of a super state, which will be supranational, invested with executive, legislative, and judiciary powers this international authority ought to have the sanction of an army and a police force the league of nations will have a moral and real force and influence on peoples in proportion to the extent to which it can rely for support upon the masonic governments of the entire world the league of nations working toward the united states of europe a federation of the world a super state having executive, legislative, and judiciary powers. The executive powers, meaning the power to force compliance with its laws. An international authority, backed up by an international police force and an international army. This was in 1922. These plans were laid. And now I'd like to switch to 1989, a speech made by John Paul II to the Roman garrison, an elite corps of Italian soldiers. On Sunday, April 2nd, 1989, John Paul II met with over 7,000 young men performing their military service At Chacignola, a base at which the important Roman garrison is stationed. It was an historic visit, the central moment of which was a new Mass at which the Pope presided, surrounded by an honor guard. During the Liturgy of the Word, John Paul II gave a homily, and in the midst of that sermon This is what he told the soldiers. He said, in speaking of what is necessary to establish world peace, in order to avoid the risks of being overcome by national or selfish interests, something of which history provides ample evidence, the Second Vatican Council promoted and advocated a worldwide authority founded on the consent of peoples and provided with sufficient means to ensure that justice and truth will be respected. In this seemingly idealistic yet realistic perspective, it is obvious that national armed forces would need to be transformed in order to support the international solidarity which the Church advocates. This transformation would take the form of a progressive reduction of armaments and armies. It would not, however, deny the necessary internal and international balance. If you look at the statement made by John Paul II on that occasion, you find some very interesting things. <clears throat> that in order to obtain this worldwide authority, you have to arm it with an international force, to carry out its mandates and that this would require a transformation in the national armies. They would have to be disarmed in favor of this international force. But what is most interesting is that John Paul II says that this was demanded by Vatican Council II. and so it would be a good idea to turn to the documents of Vatican II and find the origins of this idea in the Council. But first I'd like to read a little excerpt from the St. Louis Review of April 2nd 1989 which commented upon this speech given by John Paul II to show that this interpretation is not personal but it is an interpretation that went around the world. that The Pope was actually calling for an international police force. The article in the St. Louis Review of April 2nd, 1989 was entitled, The Pope Envisions Army-Supported World Power. Pope John Paul II, speaking to several thousand young Italian soldiers, said he hoped for the day when national armies could be transformed into a support force for a world authority. Such an authority envisioned by the Second Vatican Council is an idealistic yet realistic proposal and should have the effective means to enjoin respect for justice and the truth, the Pope said April 2nd in the visit to a military training camp at Cecconiola on the outskirts of Rome. The Pope celebrated Mass for the young recruits, their superiors and some of Italy's top defense officials during the pastoral visit made the remarks on the role of the armed forces in his sermon. The idea of a world authority based on international consensus was proposed in order to overcome the risks of possible excesses on the side of national and group interests. In this idealistic yet realistic perspective, there is an obvious need for a consequent transformation of national armed forces into a support for international solidarity, the Pope said. So where do we find this in the documents of Vatican II? We've heard a lot about these documents, but I don't know that we had really come to hear about any such call for an international police force in the documents. Well interestingly enough, just before the close of Vatican II, Paul VI came to this country and spoke to the United Nations organization in its General Assembly. That was on October 4th, 1965. And on December 7th, 1965, Paul VI promulgated the last of the so-called Apostolic Constitutions of Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes the Constitution, dogmatic Constitution, on the Church in the modern world. And it is to that document that we turn now because it is there that we do find, as John Paul II said, a call of this ecumenical council for the establishment of a world authority armed with an international army. These are all citations from Gaudium et Spes. Now this This series of quotations comes from the translation by Austin Flannery. Now, I don't like the translation by him, but nonetheless, these uh, citations are are interesting. Often his translations are a bit loose, but I did check the Latin, so I could tell you where they don't really correspond to the original. But the essence of what he says there, or what his translation uh, communicates, is what the dogmatic constitution on the church in the modern world really says. In number nine of that constitution of Vatican II the council father said there is a growing conviction of the need to establish a political social and economic order at the service of man. Among nations there is a growing movement to set up a worldwide community. And going on from there then To number fifty-four of Gaudium et Spes, picks up the theme again, the theme of internationalism. But even with a certain twist, and you will know what I mean when you hear the words, after Father Greenwell's talk this morning, I'm sure you're somewhat sensitive to this expression. And I quote from that document of Vatican II. The circumstances of life today have undergone such profound changes on the social and cultural level that one is entitled to speak of a new age of human history a more universal form of culture is gradually taking place and through it the unity of mankind is being fostered and expressed in a way that the particular characteristics of each culture are preserved Now, this document was promulgated in 1965, but here we see the seeds of the new order, not of the world, the new order of the liturgy, because the new order of the liturgy was created precisely so that each culture could find a place in the worship of the new church. It's a kind of canonization of the cultures of the world. But Pope Pius X warned that the modernists would do this, because the modernists, whom he condemned in 1907 with his encyclical Bacchanti Dominici Gregis, the modernists considered human culture to be divine revelation. They say that divine truth is revealed through the cultures of the world, through man's innate religious sense. But the very next paragraph, number 55 from Gaudium et Spes, has this to say. We must place before our eyes the unification of the world and the duty imposed on us to build up a better world in truth and justice. We are witnessing then the birth of a new humanism where man is defined before all else by his responsibility to his brothers and at the court of history. Now, isn't that wonderful? Imagine living in a world where a man is defined by these two things, his duty to his, uh, to his fellow men and the court of history. Doesn't God define man? Hasn't he already defined him? Don't we find the definition in our catechisms? But no. That definition of man is going to change. We're going to say that Paul VI calls for a new definition of man in his address to the united nations but now this new humanism was going to call for a new definition of man defining him before all else by his responsibility to his fellow men at the court of history skipping ahead in Gaudium it spans to number 82 we find written here and this is by the way what John Paul II was referring to in his speech to the soldiers at Chequenulia on April 2, 1989. Here we find the call for the International Police Authority. It is our clear duty to spare no effort in order to work for the moment when all war will be completely outlawed by international agreement. This goal, of course, requires the establishment of a universally acknowledged public authority vested with the effective power to ensure security for all, regard for justice, and respect for law. And in number 88 of that document, we read, Christians should willingly and wholeheartedly support the establishment of an international order, that includes a genuine respect for legitimate freedom and friendly sentiments of brotherhood towards all men this might as well be a Masonic document and I'm going to conclude by reading number 84 statements from number 84 and number 85 of this dogmatic constitution of the church in the modern world and then finally a short phrase from number 82 Already existing international and regional organizations certainly deserve well of the human race. They represent the first attempts at laying the foundations on an international level for a community of all men to work towards the solutions of the very serious problems of our times. And then number 85 says, The establishment of an authentic economic order on a worldwide scale can come about only by abolishing, profiteering, nationalistic ambitions, greed for political domination, schemes of military strategy, and intrigues for spreading and imposing ideologies. It will come about if all men forego their own prejudices and show themselves ready to enter into sincere dialogue. And finally, a statement from number 82 of that document, in our times this work demands That men enlarge their thoughts and their spirit beyond the confines of their own country. That they put aside nationalistic selfishness and ambitions. I guess what they mean by that is patriotism. That they cultivate deep reverence for the whole of mankind, which is painstakingly advancing toward greater maturity. Now i'd like to read another translation of that section 82 calling for the international police force this is the translation put out by the daughters of saint paul some of you might have been to the daughters of saint paul bookstores they still have some things that could pass for real catholic literature they have some things in there but little do we know that on the bookshelves in such innocent-seeming places were calls for a world authority with an international peace force. But this is uh, section 82 of this dogmatic constitution of Vatican II, according to that translation. It is our clear duty, therefore, to strain every muscle in working for the time when all war can be completely outlawed by international consent. This goal undoubtedly requires the establishment of some universal public authority acknowledged as such by all and endowed with the power to safeguard on behalf of all, security, regard for justice, and respect for rights. But before this, hope for authority can be set up, the highest existing international centers must devote themselves vigorously to the pursuit of better means for obtaining common security. Since peace must be born of mutual trust between nations and not be imposed on them through a fear of available weapons, everyone must labor to put an end at last, to the arms race, to make a true beginning of disarmament, not unilaterally indeed, but proceeding at an equal pace according to agreement and backed up by true and workable safeguards. And again, looking at this statement, which John Paul II was recalling at his speech in Cecchiola, we find here the two elements, or these two aspects, of establishing this world authority an International Enforcement Army or Police Force, and secondly the disarmament, common disarmament, of the National Armed Forces of the world. Now, it would be a good idea for us to regroup here for a moment before turning to Paul VI's speech before the United Nations to see the role of the post-conciliar popes in this establishment of the world authority and consequently their role in the establishment of the new world order. There are recurring themes in the documents of Vatican II and all of the documents of the conciliar church that have followed from Vatican II that are perfectly in harmony with the calls of the one-worlders. One of these is the call for the redistribution of the world's goods. This is very common throughout the social encyclicals of. John Paul II, Paul VI before him, John XXIII before him. The redistribution of the world's goods. We're going to see that message coming out in these statements before the United Nations. Another aspect of the call of the conciliar church for a change in the way the world is structured is this notion of religious liberty which was the document embodied in the document Dignitatis Humanae Persone decreed by the way on the same day with Gaudium et Spes December 7th 1965 You see in the document on religious liberty of Vatican II Paul VI actually did call for implicitly legal action against those who stand up for the Roman Catholic religion as the one through faith. That sounds peculiar but implicitly he did call for this because this document of Vatican II on religious liberty says that the right to profess one's religion is a God-given right which no civil authority has the power to to resist and so if, if anyone should dare to question that right if anyone should dare to say there is one true religion which all men must acknowledge as true, to which all men are called by God to give their allegiance and submission, and if any should try to resist the practice of any religion by trying to set up one religion as true and absolute, to which all men must bow down. But those who would attempt such a thing should be prosecuted by civil authority as being enemies of the rights of man. Well, Of course, they were giving a very good description of the Catholic Church throughout the century. But the Catholic Church always believed, and the true Catholic Church still does believe, that it was founded by Jesus Christ, who is not a great prophet only, but he is the Son of God. And that as such, she cannot admit that other religions have the same rights as she, given given by God to them to teach what is false, to teach lies about him. St. Thomas Aquinas says the very definition of blasphemy is that it is a lie about God. It says something about him that is not true. St. Thomas says it is the worst of sin, everything just short of hatred of God. And this document in Religious Liberty of Vatican II said that It directly contradicted the teaching of the Church, by the way, in this matter, and said that the ideal circumstance of civil society is where all religions are regarded as legally equal. The Catholic Church has always condemned that idea, and she's paid a terrific price for it, too. She seems to be very unecumenical. But this idea of one true religion does not have a place in the New World Order. So it was necessary to break down the very notion of a true religion in the minds of the people, especially in the minds of the Catholic people, and that is being accomplished now by the priests and the bishops, and especially through the agencies of men like John Paul II, Paul VI, and John XXIII. Think about it. If Mikhail Gorbachev told the world there's no such thing as one true religion, we must respect all religions because they all contain truth and you can save your soul at any of them because the Spirit of God works in them all, you wouldn't believe what he was saying. And neither would most of the Catholic people. But if John Paul II says the same thing, the Spirit of God works through all religions, you can save your soul in any one of them, as he did recently by the way in his encyclical Redemptoris Missio the mission of the Redeemer then Catholics are willing to believe it and so these men are able to accomplish with the stroke of a pen what no Roman Empire what no communist dictatorship was ever able to do and that is convinced the Catholic people to lay down their faith. Catholic people were willing to lay down their arms but they were never willing to lay down their faith until the advent of this new age in the church. And that was accomplished in the name of obedience. ecumenism, religious liberty, the redistribution of the world's goods. These are all programs which are like so many hammer blows on the old order of things to bring about the new world order. But of course, the central piece of all of it is this idea of a world authority. And the question is, in Paul VI's address to the United Nations, Do we find this call for a new world order? Remember, this was just uh, three months or so before he signed and promulgated Gaudium et Spence. A message for humanity It was entitled No More War by Pope Paul VI delivered at the United Nations, October 4, 1965. Paul VI begins by talking to the representative of the United Nations by saying that he delivers to them cordial personal homage. He points out that he brings the respect of the entire Second Vatican Council which was then meeting in Rome to the United Nations organization. Soon in his address to the United Nations, he says something that I found rather ominous, because as soon as I read this, I thought of something else. I made a connection. Because Paul VI makes this point to the members of the United Nations in 65. Listen to it and tell me if you get the same thought. Now, you here represent all peoples, he says. Allow us to tell you that we have a message, a happy message to deliver to each one of you and to all. I'll give you the whole statement. For as you will remember, we are very ancient. We here represent a long history. We here celebrate the epilogue of a wearying pilgrimage in search of a conversation with the entire world. Ever since the command was given to us, go and bring the good news to all people. Now you here represent all people. Allow us to tell you that we have a message, a happy message, to deliver to each one of you and to all. The thought that occurred to me when I read this was that this is one of the signs preceding the coming of the Antichrist, that the gospel will be preached to the peoples of the whole world. It is one of the preconditions for the coming of the Antichrist. And I found it interesting that Paul well, Six would have made a special note of that toward the beginning of his speech. He then went on to tell the United Nations Organization that it is the obligatory path of modern civilization and of world peace. He said to the representatives of the United Nations, you mark a stage in the development of mankind from which retreat must never be admitted but from which it is necessary that advance be made." He talks about the service that the United Nations is to the world. He says this in itself is a great service. Well, let me quote the whole, the whole statement again, because, again, it is as though he had come to adore the United Nations. This is what he says, You grant recognition of the highest ethical and juridical value to each single sovereign national community, guaranteeing it an honored international citizenship. This in itself is a great service to the cause of humanity, namely, to define clearly and to honor the national subjects of the world community and to classify them in a juridical condition worthy thereby of being recognized and respected by all, and from which there may derive an orderly and stable system of international life. Now think about what he's saying. He's saying that the United United Nations gives juridical legal status to nations, that the United Nations defines who are the national subjects of the world, that the United Nations classifies nations, giving them a legal status in the world and making them, quote, worthy of being recognized and respected. Now, ladies and gentlemen, our own Supreme Court in 1973 claimed to have the right to determine who is human and who is not. No national body of any as far as I know ever claimed the right to determine who is human and who is not but Paul VI is telling the United Nations that they have the power to determine what nations are citizens of the international community which of them have any legal standing which of them have any rights but this is what the Supreme Court of the United States did with individual Americans the unborn American children back in 73 just determined they have no rights because we do not recognize them as human beings so the united nations has the power to recognize or to withhold recognition from a nation giving it no juridical or legal status in the world by which it has no rights it's not worthy of recognition or respect can you imagine this coming from the mouth of a successor of saint peter and a vicar of christ on earth well no in fact it is impossible to imagine this coming from the mouth of such a man. Now, this speech was made and circulated throughout the entire world. and I wonder how many of you read it, and if you read it, I wonder how many of you recall what John, what uh, Paul VI said. Because this next statement in his speech to the United Nations, I found the most shocking statement of all. This is what he says. You are an association. You are a bridge between peoples. You are a network of relations between states. We would almost say that your chief characteristic is a reflection, as it were, in the temporal field of what our Catholic Church aspires to be in the spiritual field unique and universal you understand what he's saying here he's saying that the United Nations is like a temporal Catholic Church unique universal uniting the nations of the world But he doesn't say the United Nations is a temporal model of what the Catholic Church is. He says the United Nations is a temporal counterpart to what the Catholic Church aspires to be, what it is trying to be. In the ideological construction of mankind, this is, again, Paul VI speaking. In the ideological construction of mankind, there is, on the natural level, nothing superior to you. Your vocation is to make brothers not only of some, but of all peoples. A difficult undertaking indeed, but this is your most noble undertaking. Is there anyone who does not see the necessity of coming thus progressively to the establishment of... Of a world authority able to act efficaciously on the juridical and political level. Paul Sixth closes his speech to the United Nations by talking about a new time with the world. He says it is necessary for all of us to undergo a kind of conversion, he says, to think of mankind in a new way. But I'll let him speak. The hour has struck for our conversion, for personal transformation, for interior renewal. We must get used to thinking of man in a new way, and in a new way also of man's life in common, with a new manner, too, of conceiving the paths of history and the destiny of the world. He talks about establishing an edifice of modern civilization built upon spiritual principles. You have to be careful, because when they talk about spiritual principles, you might be tempted to think that they mean what the Catholic Church means by spiritual principles, and it simply is not so. You see when the catholic church speaks of spiritual principle she's referring to the soul she's referring to grace she's referring to eternal salvation this is not what these people mean they do not refer to the soul they do not refer to grace they do not refer to eternal salvation they talk about structures of sin in this world they talk about peace and justice on earth everything is of this world And so, when they talk about spiritual values, they mean simply human rights. In December of 19... This was 1989. Mikhail Gorbachev paid his first visit to the Vatican. And after the address of John Paul II to Gorbachev, talking about the need to let spiritual values grow, Gorbachev answered him by talking about the greatness of spiritual values. And how Soviet society was now striving to uphold spiritual values. When they say spiritual values, they don't refer to anything involving a supernatural faith or a supernatural religion. They're talking about human rights. And you know, nowhere is that more clear than in this document. This is a copy of Paul, John Paul II's address to the United Nations. October 2nd, 1979. Now this is actually where I've been leading all this time because the topic of my talk has been John Paul II and the New World Order. And so I wanted to go through this development of Vatican II and Paul VI, because because John Paul II refers to Paul VI as his spiritual father, and he refers to Vatican II as being a new Pentecost in the Church, a new Pentecost, can you imagine? And I quote him from L'Esservatore Romano on the 25th anniversary of the close of Vatican II. This is from L'Esservatore Romano, December 8, 1990. We want once again to thank God for the benefits brought by the extraordinary event which contributed to enriching the Church with important pastoral directives. With increasing energies for the incessant apostolic commitment to lead people to salvation and with renewed hopes for the growth of the Kingdom of God in the contemporary world, we are referring to a providential event, a new Pentecost, which does not cease yielding for the Church the fruits of inner renewal so that she may respond to the great expectation of humanity with greater zeal. Pure naturalism, he's talking about as the New Pentecost, was Vatican II. Well, we can't argue that Vatican II was the outpouring of some spirit in the world, but I don't think we'd agree that it is the Holy Ghost. John Paul II's II, whole pontificate, is dedicated to carrying out the directives of Vatican II. He does talk about the glories of various things. He, he talks about the uh, pious things, the rosary and so on, but in fact what he does is he puts into practice, he puts into effect the directives of Vatican II. When all is said, what he's done is he has implemented the directives of Vatican II. And he begins his talk to the United Nations by giving the reason for his being there to talk to them. He says, it is because of the special bond of cooperation that links the Apostolic See with the United Nations organization. And he goes on to say this, besides attaching great importance to its collaboration with the United Nations organization, the Apostolic See has always since the foundation of your organization expressed its esteem and its agreement with the historic significance of the Supreme Forum for the International Life of Humanity today. It also never ceases to support your organization's functions and initiatives, which are aimed at peaceful coexistence and collaboration between nations. There are many proofs of this. In the more than 30 years of the existence of the United Nations organization, it has received much attention in papal messages and encyclicals. In documents of the Catholic Episcopate and likewise in the Second Vatican Council. Pope John Twenty-Third and Pope Paul VI looked with confidence on your important institution as an eloquent and promising sign of our times. He who is now addressing you has since the first months of his pontificate several times expressed the same confidence and conviction as his predecessors. This confidence and conviction on the part of the Apostolic See is the result, as I have said, not of merely political reasons, but of the religious and moral character of the mission of the Roman Catholic Church. Again, he ties the very mission of the Church to the mission of the United Nations. He says that it is this that inspires confidence and trust. Now, the United Nations was formed at least its charter was ratified on June 26, 1945. And the organization began functioning on October 24th of 1945. And then December 10th of 48 there was passed what is what Paul VI calls the fundamental document. A fundamental document so important that he says it is the real milestone on the path of the moral progress of humanity. He says it is the cornerstone of the United Nations organization. He says that according to this document, the consciences of the representatives of the United Nations should be formed. This man-made document, which should be the formation of their consciences, is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights statement of the rights of man before the United Nations. This book, The Fearful Master, by G. Edward Griffin, has been around a long time. and I suppose many of you have heard of it, and some few of you perhaps have read it. But Griffin has a very interesting section comparing the Soviet Constitution with this idea of human rights presented by the United Nations. He makes an interesting observation. This is what he says, Article 103 of the Soviet Constitution states, in all courts, cases are tried with the participation of peoples, except in cases specially provided for by law. And Article 111 states, in all courts of the USSR, cases are heard in public, unless otherwise provided for by law. And Griffin says that this statement of a principle and then giving an enormous loophole except where provided otherwise allows the entire constitution to be voided that this is to be done except where it is provided by law and of course the law always provides otherwise and this is exactly what the United Nations covenant on human rights says repeatedly Everyone shall have the right to freedom of expression, says the Declaration on Human Rights. But a little farther along, we find this. But this right to freedom of expression carries with it special duties and responsibilities, and is therefore subject to certain penalties, liabilities, and restrictions, as are provided by law. Now, whose law? Article 15, Section 3 says, freedom to manifest one's religion or beliefs may be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law whose law article 19 promises liberty of opinion and then cancels it immediately by stating that it may be subject to certain unspecified restrictions quote as provided by law unquote article 20 the right of peaceful assembly shall be recognized no restriction may be placed on the exercise of this right Other than those imposed in conformity with the law this is a declaration of human rights by the organization that is supposed to govern the world a disarmed world with an armed police force of its own they have their own judiciary the world court They have their own legislative authority, and now all they've been waiting for is the necessary executive power, the power to enforce their decisions. And the herald of this, oddly enough, was Paul VI and the Second Vatican Council. Yet, John Paul II says in his address to the United Nations, This declaration of human rights has struck a real blow against the many deep roots of war, since the spirit of war, in its basic primordial meaning, springs up and grows to maturity where the inalienable rights of man are violated. And just as in the former statement by Paul VI to the United Nations, there was one one section that impressed me very deeply there is one statement made here by paul the sixth by john paul ii that really hit home and that's this within the church's doctrine the encyclical pacem in Teres by john the provides in synthetic form a view of this matter of world peace that is very close to the ideological foundations of the United Nations. This must therefore form the basis to which one must loyally and perseveringly adhere in order to establish true, quote, peace on earth, unquote. and Teres expresses in a synthetic form the view very close in ideological foundation to the United Nations organization amazing well I'm going to have to skip ahead here because time is running short I would just like to briefly synopsize and then refer to words of John Lennon You know, in all of this, there's no mention of our Lord Jesus Christ, his law, the recognition of his kingship. He's basically irrelevant. irrelevant. He's been superseded by an organization of men called the United Nations. This organization of men must, above all, enforce spiritual values. Spiritual values, again, meaning the rights of man. It calls for the establishment of a world authority to establish these values. If You want to ask what kind of a world the New World Order is meant to be created by this world authority, I think you'd find a very good expression, a very good picture of the New World Order by the time it is finally completed. You find the description in a rock song by a former member of the Beatles. His name is John Lennon. You recall that he was he was murdered some years ago. John Lennon wrote a song called "Imagine." And this is what he said: "Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try." No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. imagine no possessions i wonder if you can no need for greed or hunger a brotherhood of man imagine all the people sharing all the world They are building a new tower of Babel. They are trying to build heaven on earth. Now what is our place in all this? Our place is this. We are called upon to make the greatest act of faith that Catholics have ever made. That's what is going to be required of us. We believe in the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. But That takes faith, you know, to believe that in the host is the body and blood of Christ. We have to believe that Christ truly is who he said he was, that he is the Son of God. But even the apostles who believed in the Blessed Sacrament, They found it hard to believe that Jesus could really rise from the dead. Like the apostles, we believe in the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. We are now being challenged to believe what they found so hard to believe, that the Church can rise from the dead we see the passion that she suffered and it is almost inconceivable that even god can retrieve this situation almost inconceivable because we can't imagine how he could do it just as they could not imagine how christ how that body taken down from the cross so stiff and so blocked brutalized could ever live again but we are called upon to make this act of faith that the church can rise from the dead we're called upon to make an act of faith that even the Apostles found so difficult that's our place Well God give us the grace to keep that faith ourselves to give it to our children and in spite of all the grief that they have caused us may God grant us this signal mark the true Catholic. And the grace to forgive, and the grace to pray for our enemies. God bless you.